Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line by my producer, Hamil Javeri, as has become the tradition on Fridays. I like doing this on Fridays. I think it's a, a good end to the week. It's fun because we get to chat and it counts as work. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Right. Um, and we've got some, we've been taking some questions and answers. We've got some good questions today that I want to discuss, but we do like to bring a topical sports hook here. And it's kind of been a slow week in sports, but the big talk now is the NFL playoffs are about to start. And it certainly looks like the New England Patriots are the favorites. Neither you nor I, I think, is positioned to offer a bunch of expertise on what's going to happen in the NFL playoffs. But what we both can do is hate on the New England Patriots. And so what I want to ask you to start off is, is there a more hateable franchise in sports than the New England Patriots? You know, that's a tough question. And I think I'm going to have to go with no. I think that they're probably right now the most hateable franchise. What? Who else even comes close? Um, so, so there are, so the big Maybe one. Maybe the Yankees. Well, see, the Yankees were so hateable for so long. And right. I hear that, but it's now like the balance in the in baseball has sort of shifted. So that first of all, the Yankees haven't really won anything since 2009, which is mm-hmm. for by their standards a uh, kind of a long time. Uh, they're also no longer really the big spending team. They're one of the big spending teams in baseball. But I think part of what made people hate the Yankees so much was that their payroll was always so far above every other team's. Now the Dodgers have sort of taken over as that team, and so I think that makes the Yankees a little bit more likable. I think also that the Yankees sort of uh, generation of storied veterans and future Hall of Famers have all kind of, you know, gone on. Now, A-Rod just retired, or seems like he's retiring. Jeter just retired. Mariano Rivera just retired, uh, you know, a couple years back. And uh, obviously Jeter was a year ago. Don't tweet at me that Derek Jeter didn't just retire. I get it. I was there. Um, but I think that like the Yankees have gone towards this sort of a youth movement. And to me, at least, and as someone who li- has always lived in New York and grew up in New York, not a Yankees fan, and certainly had moments of really hating the Yankees, I don't feel any sort of hatred towards the Yankees now. Part of that is a, is a professional thing. Uh, just like when you see them up close, they're a lot harder to hate. They're not yeah. bad dudes, you know. But uh, but I think also part of it is just like I get psyched about young baseball players. And so any team that has a cool crop of, of young players is going to be fairly exciting to me. I think the big candidate uh, to me would be Duke basketball. And I don't know, oh, yeah. it's kind of, sign of a different, different category because it's college sports, but I feel like Duke basketball might be equally hateable to the Patriots. I, I agree with you, and it's kind of all falls under the same bucket of uh, unchecked privilege, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it isn't even so much about teams that win a lot because I have no problem with the Golden State Warriors, even though their streak hasn't continued nearly as long as the Patriots. Um, but it's something about that win first, unchecked privilege at all costs kind of mentality that really drives me up the wall. Well, yeah, and Bill Belichick is just, and he knows it, and that kind of, like, to me, that kind of makes me like them more, him and Brady oh, both, is they both seem so perfect to embrace the role of bad guy that, like, Tom Brady just always feels to me like the guy who would be the bad guy in an Adam Sandler movie, right? <laughs> and that makes me kind of like him, because, like, I like Shooter McD- McGavin, and I, and I like uh, the, you know, the, the bad guy, Eric and Billy Madison, because I think it's funny. And, like, Tom Brady, 
it feels like he knows he's got everything and is happy to rub it in your face sometimes. See, see, I can, I can kind of understand that, but there's a point where it flips from being kind of absurdly funny or like I know what I'm doing. Um, but I actually think that Brady actually lacks like that level of like sophistication to grasp like the irony of it. Like I, I really genuinely think that <laughs> he's just you know, for real. He's, yeah, like like he's just like yeah, I'm awesome, and being awesome is great. And he might have for a while, you know, like understood what was happening, but now he's just like past that point um, where he can't see uh, just how completely ridiculous his own life is. He's, I mean, he's too deep into it, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's coming out with like new sleepwear lines. He's got his like nutritional guidebook out. He's yeah. never had coffee right like he's just like come on man yeah I, I i hear that i think that i think that probably living as tom brady warps your perspective yes. so much on the yes. world i think that living as tom brady is kind of like living like gwyneth paltrow like it becomes so you become so into your own bubble that you can't even really see outside of it and it makes sense to start selling things at like absurd amounts of money um, but I, but that's not even really my problem with it. Like like I get that, but it's really kind of this. Um, it's really their their attitude of uh, we deserve this without any other like responsibility around it. Like Belichick, Brady. I'm a fairly political person, and I don't want this to like become a political podcast. But I definitely think that athletes or like public figures have social responsibility in any way that they choose to exercise it. And it drives me crazy that Belichick and Brady kind of abstain from that and are just like, well, we're just about the wins. So right. It's like, like it's you're like, yeah, you're I, also a citizen of the world. And you, know, it's, you should you should probably, you know, accept that fact as well. And it's why LeBron James for being the best athlete in the world, and that's a yeah. position that can make someone a villain. LeBron James never seems like a villain, right? He seems yeah. like, to me, he seems like such a good dude that LeBron James can, on top of being the best athlete literally in the world, I think, yeah. and, and can can also be like a fairly responsible and upright dude who mm -hmm. like has, and it's, and it's, you know, sometimes I agree with what he has to say and sometimes maybe I don't, I, you know, I don't, it's not like I've followed every single word he said closely, but it seems like a guy who's like outwardly like, a good father and an upright guy who will like speak up for what he believes in and isn't out here being like well Republicans buy sneakers too which I think you know with yes. due respect to Michael Jordan for being <clears throat> the best basketball player most of us have ever seen or at least did until LeBron I mean that's that's like a cowardly thing to say to me if that's if you have something to say and all you and all your marketing team and all of your business advisors um, make you say Republicans buy sneakers too that to me and like you know and I don't know maybe Jordan was actually a hardcore Republican and and wanted to speak out on that behalf and didn't whatever it was that exactly. he's like that he's not and it's tough it's tough because it's tough to blame someone for that and for blame someone for like well I don't really want to take a public facing political stance certainly we try to avoid that as sports journalists too right but mm -hmm. um, yeah I mean there's a balance there right and there are times when it kind of feels like you have to stand stand up for something and it feels like like LeBron James is the guy who's kind of nailing that balance right it's not like well exactly Le well so LeBron James understands that there are bigger things in the world than NBA basketball right every time he kind of decides to take a stand on on any kind of issue like what they did at the SB's 2 years ago 
there is an understanding and a feeling that this game transcends just what happens on the field and it transcends just my ability to participate on the court. Um, and it transcends my self-interest. But I feel like with Belichick and Brady, it is that constant coming back to, well, this is in my best self-interest, so that is what I'm going to do. And well, that is what is hugely frustrating about it, about liking the Patriots or Belichick, because it's in the end, it's really just about them. Right, and it's it's that sort of, you know, it's the way Belichick has, I don't know, managed the message so well, and Brady too, that mm -hmm. they can, like, frequently be caught cheating, right? Like, they've been caught cheating on multiple occasions, and they're just like, oh, sorry, I, I misinterpreted the rules. Like, South Park made the whole episode yeah. joking about it, a and they just get away with that, and because they, you know, they win, and, and people in New England love them so much inside that bubble that I think that probably, um, and I've seen this with, with other ex-athletes and, and, and former athletes and people who were revered like that, you are probably never in a situation where you're, like, conversing with people who vocalize disagree with you because everybody's just like kissing your butt constantly and yep. yeah I think it just kind of warps your sense of reality and it makes you a very easy person to hate. I think so I, I would love to like I would love to like Tom Brady and the New England Patriots I really would um, so far I don't have any reasons to do that <laughs> so, I mean like yes I fully acknowledge that they're very very good at football he is a great football player Belichick is a great football coach. The New England Patriots know how to win. Does that make it fun to like them or root for them outside of somebody who lives in Boston? I don't think so. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's I think that probably more than anything it's the winning that people hate, you know, and I think that the their personalities are other just like sort of ancillary elements of it. Like everybody not when you actually I think everybody who speaks out about their sports fandom Try, mm -hmm. tends to hate the winners, you know? Like, it doesn't work out that way when you look at, like, who's buying merchandise and stuff. People will buy the winner's stuff all the time. But, yeah. but you almost saw it, like, I saw it on baseball a lot. Like, all of a sudden, with the Cubs being good this year, and, like, halfway through the year, when I was like, oh, my God, the Cubs are incredible, now there's backlash to the Cubs for, like, the first time ever, right? Like, this, yeah. like, lovable loser team, now all of a sudden they're stacked, and so now all of a sudden people are like, oh, I hate the Cubs, can't stand their fans, don't want them to, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I mean, first of all, let it breathe a little bit, right? Like, let's right, have the right. Cubs win pretty, two within a century, and then we can hate them, but, uh, yeah, but I think... Well, I think the hockey equivalent, um, the NHL equivalent definitely is not so much even the Pittsburgh Penguins, but Sidney Crosby, right? Mm -hmm. This is a guy who is arguably just a great, great player, but if he's not on your team, every people hate him, and they make up all kinds of reasons. He's a whiner, he takes dives, like, regardless of the fact that, you know, he's had concussions and battled through adversity, there's still people just have that bias against the winner um, just because they don't play on your team. I feel like there's, and you can speak to this better than me for, for hockey, you know, discussion mm -hmm. and rhetoric, but I've, and I feel like there's a little bit of this element in the other sports still, but I feel like it's abating, especially in baseball and basketball where, like, you we can read in such detail about the injuries and we know what they mean in each case, but it feels like hockey and, and to a lesser extent, the NFL still have this sort of like macho air around the oh, way we discuss them, especially with hockey. Yeah. And it's like, like you oh. think back to the way people treated Eric Lindros, who's like a great hockey player who just had horrible injuries. Right. And then like, like obviously, you know, and in hockey, it seems like it's the worst. Like there's still this tough guy mentality. 
It is, and it really drives me crazy because, and this is one thing where I'm going to call out the media, and I'm going to call out myself for it, is because a lot of it is perpetuated by, I'm not even perpetuated, but we are co-signing on it by the headlines that we because we will, um, we will uh, exalt somebody for like taking a punch to the face and coming back with stitches, and it'll be like, and he played the rest of the game. And I think more and more, I've just started to point out that like this is incredibly dangerous. Like this is a dude who probably has a concussion, um, but that's kind of what um, you know what people want to embrace about the sport. I think, which is like, oh, they're so tough. So anytime that you know, anytime a guy comes back or doesn't come back, it is a huge story. Like I, I think that you know, if you're bleeding, then maybe you want to sit the rest of this game out. Yeah, and I think, honestly, like, that, and, I, like, I, you know, I don't want to, like, moralize, because, like, I kind of, yeah. I understand the appeal of the tough athlete, right? Like, I get why it's cool that Cal Ripken played 2,600 straight games. It's an incredibly impressive feat, but I know that I valued that aspect of athletes so much growing up, and that was just kind of a thing, like, and sort of still remains, like, a thing in my family. It's just, like, your toughness, and, 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 and we never went to school. We, we always went to school yeah. when we were sick, and we always, you know, like, yeah. always played through pain and everything. And so, yeah. to me, like, uh, I knew I wasn't ever going to be the best football player, right? But it was like, but if I can be the toughest and the guy who can stick it out, and, and I actually went, I played three years of, of varsity football, and I never missed a snap. And that was, like, the thing I pride my, prided myself yeah. on. Um, but I, because of that, because I was so dedicated to that, I definitely played through a concussion that I suffered my junior year of high school, a time when you absolutely should not be playing football. I mean, obviously, no time should you be playing through football through a concussion. I, I had a... a like a very traumatic on-field collision on what was an interception, so I was coming off the field anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I was woozy. I like I fell to the ground. I stumbled, and then I got to the sidelines and I hit it, and I hit it from my coaches, and I hit it from my parents, and I hit it from my teachers because all I wanted was to keep playing football and to say like, oh no no no, I play football. Um, and and so like yeah, like look, yeah. we're never gonna get past that, especially in the contact sports. You know, that's always gonna be part of it. But I do think it's important to to sort to take that bigger perspective, like, well, you're going to play a lot more football if you don't die at age 38 because well, you've had crazy head injuries. Well, well, exactly. So this is where coaches and adults come into the picture who have to have the ability to tell you that actually it's okay for you to take, like, three weeks off from this game. Um, do you know what I mean? Because we don't, we don't do that now, right? Right now, the NHL is getting better at, you know, having concussion protocols and having coaches come in and say, actually, this dude can't play regardless of how badly he wants to go back out there and play. Um, and the other part of it is the message that we send to, um, boys and young men in general, which is that if you don't come back and be tough, like there's something wrong with you and that you're, you know, it's all like wrapped up into this idea of masculinity, which can be really destructive in a lot of weird, different ways that you can't even predict, right? Yeah, I mean... So I, I, it's, it's, it's just such a complicated thing to, to untangle. Yeah, my uh, my middle school football coach called me a fairly nasty and uh, term I, I can't call I can't say on on the podcast uh, because I kept complaining about 
an injury that he thought was just having the wind knocked out of me. Yeah. And I played through it for two weeks until I got in my dad's car. It was seventh grade. I got in my dad's car and I broke down in tears. So in so much pain. And we, he was like, well, we, this is crazy. We got to go to the doctor. I went to the yeah. doctor. I had a broken rib. And I was Jesus just playing Christ. middle school football with a broken yeah. rib. Like, because I you're, wanted to be in tough. middle school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, so Gabriel Landeskog, who is the captain of the Colorado Avalanche, like had this great piece in the Players Tribune um, a couple of a couple of months ago, which was really kind of addressing the same issue, where he needed his teammates to tell him, like, we don't need you back here. Like, we need you to be healthy, and that is the most important priority because otherwise he would have gone back out and played with a concussion just because. I mean, he felt like guilt internally and, you know, not that the coaches were pressuring him, but everything around him said that he had to be tough enough to play through the pain. So it's like, it's so messed up, especially, and these are professional athletes, but like if we're doing it to middle school kids, like that's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that now, especially in football, like where we know so much more about the long-term yeah. effects of the injuries, yeah. um, I think that you see a lot more people sort of pumping the brakes. Like I know that like, even on like my, my, 10-year-old, 9-year-old nine, nephew's uh, peewee team. They're, like, super cautious with our yep. kids. You know, like, they don't they don't mess around with that. So, and I think it's getting there. Like, like I said, yeah. like, it's in, you know, like, I think now the athletes themselves know that their teammates sometimes are better off being, you know, we'd rather mm -hmm. have you healthy for 130 games than, than at 65% for 150. So exactly. I think you're seeing that movement. But uh, we okay. should get on to the questions and answers because we've yeah i know we we got derailed talking about off of how much we don't like the patriots anyway Brady is simply too good and too handsome <laughs> too handsome for sure but but handsome in a weird creepy ken doll way right i mean he's too handsome he's too handsome he's too handsome yeah um, and, and I will also remind you, and I don't know if you remember this, but one of my great, my favorite Tom Brady moments of all time, and I kind of get why it happened, but it was just the way it presented itself, like, frontward. Um, mm -hmm. He was in an ESPN interview about, like, you know, how he was a low draft pick and how, you know, he almost got passed up, and he, like, breaks down in tears and says, I almost had to be an insurance salesman. <laughs> and that, to me, is just, like, the most, like, the funniest and most hateable thing that, like, oh, this guy, God. like, was like just crying at the at the concept of like a fine reasonable job, you know? Yeah, at a at a fine white collar existence. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go. So we got a bunch of questions. Uh, again, we we are very food heavy on the questions. It's it's kind of what happens. Um, that's right. That's cool. Uh, it's it's fun for me. I know it's less fun for you. Um, I'll skip it's not. That. It's not that bad for me because I get to talk about how much I don't like food. So yeah. <laughs> well, well. So one of our questions was from. Uh, Jared Diamond, who is a Wall Street Journal reporter and right. guy I know, and he said, I think to mess with you or mess with me, because I said, please don't ask about food, he said, food, a good thing or literally the best thing ever. Um, I, I mean, I kind of feel like it's, it's towards the best thing ever for me, just because, like, I need it, and it brings me great joy. So, like, it's a it's a nice balance of of things that I like and need. Like, I can I can eat amazing food, and then that uh, helps propel me through life without like batteries and stuff, you know. So, I, I would say food is is among the maybe the best thing ever. I will go with option C, which Jared didn't provide, which is necessary evil, like. Food to me is is a necessary like time waster, which is not to say that I don't 
enjoy eating something that is good or something that I like to eat. But we've talked about this before. I, w I would be happy if we lived in like a Jetsons era landscape where you just got all your nutrients by pill. Did, well, did you know? You, did you do you know about Soylent? No, I don't know about Soylent. <laughs> um, so Soylent, I don't even know if it still exists. It was like a thing for a few years. It was like a, a Silicon Valley product that that they were like that became like an it thing to talk about. They made this. Uh, shake it's like a it comes as a powder and then you add it to water and it's a shake that has like literally all your nutrients and you can you can subs, you can subsist on just soylent um and so it became a thing i think for like coder guys who are working 80 hour weeks who would be like well i you know i work my 80 hour weekend because i never have to break for food because i always have soylent at my desk I, I remember hearing about it, and I think that that is maybe a step too far. I don't want to have to drink all my meals, um, but it, that actually does sound disgusting. But, and like, you wouldn't, like, so, because I've had even stretches of my life where, like, it's just this is the most convenient meal for me, and I will eat it every single day. Like, I went uh, yeah. one year, and this is, like, while living alone. Like, I basically alternated between uh, frozen dumplings and the uh, smoked chicken for like it was a four dollar quarter chicken for at, at a local barbecue place it was really good and like that was it like I just that was all I ever ate for dinner was one of those two things because I wasn't <laughs> near a supermarket and it was like those were the easy things to either acquire or prepare um, uh, do, do you mix it up at least um, I am very lucky because I live with my sister who is a great cook, so I don't really have to worry about that. I, I eat really well all the time because I never do any of the cooking. So your uh, sister is not like you with in terms of food? No, and it's so weird because my sister has always been a little bit more like my mom who was a great cook and they kind of bonded over it. So I will tell you kind of why my... One has to do with the fact that I think I'm extraordinarily lazy when it comes to food preparation. It's just too much work for a very low return on like the time investment that you're putting into it, right? Um, but part of it also has to do with the fact that my mom and my sister were like so controlling in the kitchen that every time I would go in and try to help, it became a huge like it was it was kind of a weird source of conflict. And this is my favorite story about why I never cook anymore is that when I was like eight years old and my sister was 10, she she was yelling at me about like peeling a cucumber the wrong way. Like she was kind of getting on my case about <laughs> how I was doing it badly. And I got so mad, I threw it on the kitchen floor. It like exploded everywhere. And that is literally, literally the last time that we have tried to like prepare a meal together. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess so, so some early childhood trauma <laughs> forced you to hate food for the rest of your life. I mean, I, I don't hate it. I just, it's so much work. It's so much work. See, I, I find, and like, I didn't, again, when I lived alone, like, I really didn't cook for myself all that much, but like, now I'm married, and I do sort of the bulk of the cooking in our house, and my wife works crazy hours, so like, there, I do find pleasure, and this is something I definitely get from my mom, because my mom's like, one of her big expressions of love is like, in food. She like, yeah. you're coming home, like, okay, like, here we go. I'm like firing up yeah. lasagna. I'm making pasta sauce. I'm doing, you know, like there's gonna be fried yeah. chicken. There's gonna be this. So like I do also have that like where I really enjoy 
making a meal that my wife will then enjoy. And it doesn't mean I, I soy, because, like, if I really were in it, if I weren't at least a little bit in it for myself, I would probably make, like, more of, like, fish and delicate vegetable-oriented things that she loves, and it's not really like that, but... Um, it's no, like a good a it's very... a good balance for me to find like I can do the cooking and I like doing the cooking because I have someone else that I'm cooking for. I, I think that's a very good take on it. Um I hope that I become the kind of person that eventually will cook a couple of meals a week. Like I'm never gonna be my sister who, you know, is a great cook and cooks a lot. But like for her, that is her expression of love. Like exactly like you said, like this is how She's like, okay, well, this is what I'm doing for the family. This is what I'm doing for friends. Um, and I will say my expression of love is that I am the person who cleans the bathrooms in the house. Like, I am the one who does all the dusting. So it's a, it's just a very different division of labor. Right. Like, my wife is, uh, she takes out the garbage. She handles the recycling. She washes yeah. the dishes a lot of the times. You know, we, yeah, it breaks yeah. up in different ways. She keeps, she keeps the apartment, I would say, largely from, like, falling into complete squalor, <laughs> which is how it would be if I were left to my own devices. It would be like, once every three months, I decide it's too dirty in here and I clean and that would be it but she like maintains some level of of sanitation here <laughs> yeah of decorum that is necessary all right here's a here's a sports right. question i got a sports question this is okay. from uh at reno wallabout who's who's asked us questions before and we appreciate it very much uh good this is a good sports question which sport do you wish you understood better or want to get into more i love that question do you want to take that first, or you want me to go? Um, the easy answer for me is cricket because it's because okay. baseball is my favorite sport. So like it's a, it feels like a similar sort of idea, um, and like one that uh, where it's like I I feel like I have like a kinship with a cricket fan in a way I don't with like a a big time soccer fan. Like mm -hmm. if I were to meet a British dude and I've had like you know where I've in situations where I've like wound up talking to someone from one of the cricket playing places who is really into cricket like. I love that conversation because we can discuss like the various intricacies and differences and I have so much to learn about the sport and times when uh, you know different strategies that might seem right in baseball or wrong in cricket. Uh, it's fun to talk to Luke about actually because Luke's kind of into cricket and, and you know as we know from England, one of our coworkers. So uh, I would say cricket is the easiest one but there's a there's a bunch for me. There's like I kind of love like strange uh, off the beaten path sports. There's a baseball variant that they play in Finland called uh, Pesapalo. And that is super wacky. Like it just, um, it only vaguely resembles baseball, but you can tell that it's based on baseball. And I'm, I'm really into that. Um, I like, yeah, I would say that it would be any sort of like uh non-traditional ball sport I find like fairly compelling. I'm not into races and things along those lines like the the sort of uh, the Olympic style competitions which are tons of them but like uh, do you know Sepactacraw? I don't know that. What is that? So that is like uh, that's big in Southeast Asia and I saw some guys like I saw some guys playing pickups Sepactacraw in, in Thailand which was it was phenomenal to watch and it was something I knew about from like a long time back from like an early job in this career, um, but it is basically volleyball played with the feet. Um, so it's like a mix of like hacky sack and volleyball, and like the way these guys can control their bodies to use to like 
move this ball around with their feet is just incredible. Like it's all um, like the equivalent of like bicycle kicks in soccer, and it's a super fun sport to watch. I don't know like that. I would want to be like the world's foremost sepactocrawl expert. <laughs> um, you know, like I don't know. Maybe after you watch it a hundred times, it gets boring. I I can't say, but I can say that like having seen that sport and watched that sport, like that's a fun sport to watch. I I feel like some of these like weird obscure sports. Um especially when they happen in other countries, would be really cool to... I get, Like you said, I don't want to be a beat writer about them, but I would like to watch an actual game, see if there's a league, um, which actually sound more like fun to play than they might be to actually report about. Um, so I would say for me, it's actually way more boring because I wish the sport that I understood better or had like a better understanding of just like the structure around it is soccer. Like EPL, Champions League, like... I feel like every single time there's a soccer game happening and we're so out of tune with, or I'm so out of tune with when it's happening that like all these other people on our staff are freaking out like Luke and Charles and I'm like, oh, it's a big soccer thing, but my understanding around it is very limited. See, I appreciate that, but I don't have that at all with soccer. And like I... I, it's and I recognize that I used to be like your sort of classic like American guy telling everybody why soccer sucks and every all that like I I gave up on that I get that there's an appeal to the sport obviously it's super popular worldwide I don't want to hate on people for liking soccer it doesn't really do it for me aesthetically and I am a born contrarian who spends a lot of time in Brooklyn and so the like Brooklyn soccer guy. Scene yeah, it just there. It, there's like a very hipster element to being a soccer person now. Right, and I don't want any part of that. And like, and like, it just I don't know. It seems so ridiculous when I mean, first of all, there's I mean, I don't know. And maybe this is not just maybe this is my perception, but like, I feel like soccer hooligans just take it way too seriously in many cases and it's like like because i saw like a, a street fight on uh, in in a pizza place in brooklyn with which left like a dude on the floor covered in blood immediately after like a big soccer match in brooklyn it's like why why are you people this into this like why why would this have prompted that it's sports right and i get that these things happen and they happen in all sports but it feels like there's like that like super rambunctious aspect mm -hmm. to soccer fandom that doesn't really appeal to me because I don't take anything seriously. Um, so that's part of it for me a little bit, you know, but like again, I know plenty of reasonable soccer fans who will sit down and be like, no, this is why it appeals to me and it's cool. And like, I respect that. I just, it's not, it's not because so many people are into it. It's not the new sport I'm going to take up. I think I agree with that. I would also say that in addition, well, soccer is just also because I would like to just know more about it because I feel like I'd be better at my job if I did. I think that's part of it. The other sport for me would probably be rugby because rugby I actually enjoy watching. Like, it's very fast. The games are super quick. Um, that seems way more interesting than probably, like, than soccer, for yeah, sure. Yeah, rugby I Even can get... though it's really, like, it's also really problematic. Let me just say that up For sure, for sure. But, like, rugby I can get down with. That's a cool sport. Yeah. From what I've seen, uh, like, we used to just sort of, like, make up fake 
rugby variants in the <laughs> in like schoolyards when we were young. Yeah. And it was always super fun to play whatever variety of rugby we were making up. Um, Australian rules football, uh, commonly or yes. colloquially known as Australian no rules football, is a fun one to watch. At least, or it used to be when it was on ESPN in the middle of the night. So, like that's something I could probably get down with more than soccer necessarily. I agree. I think those are both better options than soccer. You, you've convinced me. Right. You actually... Um, I tapped I into I your deep-seated hatred for everything. Well, you tapped into my deep-seated hatred for everything, but also for, for hipsters, for equating soccer with kind of that Brooklyn hipster that really tends to irk me. <laughs> right, and like so many of the people I hang out with and are like my best friends in the world like are those exact Brooklyn hipsters, <laughs> but I don't want to... To think it's okay for them to be like, oh my god, he almost scored a goal, and they didn't score the goal. I don't know. I just like, I kind of like tweaking them about yeah. that. Um, and for sure, all my friends are also, you know, a large quantity are Brooklyn hipsters, so I feel you there. Uh, all right, I want to throw this is a this is one this is, we're going back to food, and this okay. is one from our our former coworker Micah, uh, Micah Peters, and he. Love you, Micah. This is directed clearly at you. Because, it's clearly for because, me. Because part of your food distaste, um, yep. there's one aspect that goes beyond the regular, which is that you are down on brunch. He says, yeah. I want a cogent argument against brunch with three supporting facts. I feel like I haven't heard that from you yet. He obviously means you. I haven't been that hard against brunch. I have. So I will start by saying that I have been a stringent anti-bruncher for a very, very long time. Um, I hear that, and part of that is like sort of the anti-hipster thing. Yeah. Part of it is sort, sort of the anti-hipster thing. Part of it, like, I think makes me sound like a crazy person, but, like, Micah wanted three points, so I'll very quickly rattle off three points before I kind of get into why the culture is just so odious to me. Okay. Um, like, one, it is unreasonably expensive because that is the time of day that people feel like, you know, Saturday and Sunday afternoons, they can charge, like, $20 for a splash of orange juice and, you know, champagne. So it is, you know, it is not budget-friendly. Okay, yeah, and then you're talking about, like, sort of, like, the bottomless brunch, right? Well, yeah, the bottomless brunch or just, like, any place that you happen to go to that isn't, like, a diner, right? right? And, and, yeah, okay, I hear that. And the, the, yeah. a big part of the brunch scene is, like, you, you're spend, spending 25 bucks for your meal, but your meal comes with a mimosa. Right, and it comes, right, and 25 bucks, I think, is, is relatively inexpensive, right? Like I, don't, I don't do the brunch thing a lot. I, I yeah. mean, I don't. I think, and so part, one, the expensive thing, but also this is all wrapped up into, like, the brunch culture, which is that people brunch, right? People with nothing better to do on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon can waste an entire day. So that's my other thing, is that it wastes your entire day. You, you wake up probably a little bit later than usual. You will go hang out at this place where you will be standing in a very long line to pay you know, to pay more than is necessary for food that you could easily make at home um, just for the, and then you'll you'll stay there for like three to four hours, which is completely unreasonable. Um, I also think that generally the food is never really very good. I'm also a vegetarian, so like there's very limited options for like brunch food for vegetarians. Well, like pan Pancakes are cool though, yeah, right? Yeah, literally you will get like pancakes and toast and it will cost you like 50 bucks. 
Um, I would say that, and this is, I think, particular to me because, like, I know a lot of people will be like, "How great is a fried egg on a sandwich?" And like, I'm not, I'm not that into mixing my metaphors food-wise, so to speak. Like, I, I'm all about experimenting with stuff, but like, I don't love the fried egg on the burger. Like, I just don't feel like it adds all that much. Um, mm -hmm. And I know you can't speak to that, but uh, but so like that is an aspect of it. It's like, oh well, we we now you know it's brunch time, so what we do is we put a fried egg on the burger. It's like I'd rather have some bacon, which also counts as breakfast and uh and just have it be lunch so like for me the brunch thing uh, you hit on a bunch of it um and i'm i'm not like hard line against brunch like if someone's like hey you want to go to brunch sure i'll go to brunch i mean i got nothing oh, better I'm to do. um so like i'm i'm more ambivalent but my wife and i like at least in our like left to our own devices we we'll never go out to like a fancy brunch it's just not something we're more likely i think part of it is that I am kind of on the schedule where I wake up at the same time every day, no matter what day it is, no matter what time I go to sleep. Like, I'm just broken like that. Like, I'm going to wake up. <laughs> I'm going to wake up by 8 a.m. every day, and even if I'm trying to sleep in. She is not. So she will, and again, because she works like crazy hours, so she'll be have this like built up tiredness for, by the end of the week. So mm -hmm. Saturday morning, if she's not working, like I might be up by eight, and she might not get up until like eleven thirty. So where mm -hmm. brunch works is that then I can eat lunch and she can have breakfast. But uh, like you said, we can also do that, and we far more often do that at the diner on the corner where they have all the same things they offer you for brunch plus more things, and it's cheaper. Yeah, it really, it, like, the whole brunch thing is, it's not even so much about the, the meal that you're actually eating, right? Because if you're just eating a midday meal, and you kind of go in, eat at a time between breakfast and lunch, and, like, get it over with and leave, that is not brunch, like, with a big B with quotation marks, right? Like, people who brunch are very insufferable about they're brunching, right? Like it is a whole thing for them as to where they're going and who they're going with and whether they get freaking kale in their omelet and then they have to Instagram it and then they won't shut up about how much they actually love brunch. Um, well, you can lay off people who Instagram their food. I, <laughs> I have a hard... And I break it sometimes for you, but it's I, I won't like people who Instagram pictures of food. Like, I won't like your post because it drives me up the freaking wall. Uh, um, well, you know what? I, I don't really like – like, I hate I, – I, and I feel like such a stooge when I get – when some when they, like, bring me a meal at a restaurant and I pull out my camera and start taking a picture of it because I, I get that, that that is, like, a thing that annoys people and is, like, super kind of, like – bougie and irritating, you know, yeah. but uh, at the same time, like, this is, I feel like I'm special, and, like, my food posts actually matter, and that I should be able to do as I please, so <laughs> I, you, yeah. you should do exactly what you please. Um, there was this great article in the New York Times a couple of years ago, but it was called Brunches for Jerks, and it really nails down, like, why brunching is insufferable, because it also just kind of represents, like, the gentrification of neighborhoods that once used to just be filled with like, you know, small eateries that were like very culturally specific, but now every place has like the same brunch menu with the same like industrial feel and farm to table um, garbage that is just completely homogenous. Like, well, so it, it, I feel I'm like, crazy. I hear what you're saying. I feel like that 
element of it is probably more specific to DC than New York because DC has so much turnover in everything and gentrifies so rapidly that like those like similar looking similarly menued industrial brunch places just sort of pop up and like here's yeah like you said like here's the new farm to table place certainly we have a lot of that in New York but I think there are it 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 all sort of happens slower here because Mm -hmm. everything everything's just sort of so dug in that the the narrower and I think more delicious uh, ethnic place usually stays open at least if it's good it might mm-hmm. stay open a little bit longer and so mm-hmm. uh, and and for me I think that if someone was like hey do you want to go to this new farm to table brunch spot for this thing or you know it's noon do you want to go to that dope takeout Chinese place you know about in Chinatown. I'm always going for the, the takeout Chinese place in Chinatown and like the the fanciness of it to means nothing to me. Like I just want good right. food. So And then that just becomes right, but then, and then that's that lunch. becomes lunch. Like and that's, that's my thing, right? It's like yeah. and it's weird to me that it's like, oh it's two PM. It's time to go out for brunch. No, it's two PM. That's lunch that's past lunchtime. That's yeah, why that's, I recall this brunch anymore. I mean that's semantics. That's, that's, it's semantics. You can call whatever you want. I don't really care, but I'm not calling it brunch. That's lunch. <laughs> that's that's exactly how I feel. Um yeah, it literally it's just one of these like insufferable things where I see also part of a huge deal for me is that like day drinking really messes me up. Like it does it day drinking never ends well for me and like brunch there's always like a bloody mary or a mimosa and I get drunk very easily very quickly. So inevitably I end up like sad, depressed, asleep on my couch at like four o'clock in the afternoon, just like a waste of space. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big day drinker either, so maybe we're both sort of missing yeah. that element. I also like passionately dislike Bloody Marys. I think that it tastes like something that should be consumed on a dare. Oh, Bloody Marys, I love Bloody Marys, and if I could get them, I mean, you can get them at any time of day, but that's my one redeeming quality of brunch. Okay, um, I think that it tastes like something, and you don't eat steak, you wouldn't know this, but it tastes like something I might want to, like, marinate a steak in. And that's about that's about the extent of it. Anyway, anyway, Micah, that's why I hate brunch. Um, I will maybe talk to you about it in person sometime. Um, are you asking Micah out to brunch? <laughs> no. Um, because or I can right. say any time that isn't brunch related. All right. Um, let's go move on to. Uh, okay, this is a, this is one I assume is sort of directed to me as a baseball guy, and, but I actually want to kind of throw it at you because Nate Weiser asks. Uh, who do you think should get into the Hall of Fame this year? I think that there are uh, more than 10 qualified candidates. I wrote about it. I said, like, this is what my Hall of Fame ballot would be. Uh, I am a fourth year now member of the Baseball Writers Association, so it means I got another six years before I can actually vote for the thing unless they change the <laughs> rules. Um, the main one, and I think the, the big thing that, that sort of transcends the traditional Hall of Fame debate, which is uh, something I never really want to get involved in and always end up fighting about online. Uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, you follow baseball. You know Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I follow two baseball. Of, two, yeah. Of the, two of the best players of all time. Right. Uh, they, there's strong reasons to believe they both took performance-enhancing drugs during the, the era when basically everyone was taking performance-enhancing drugs, mm-hmm. uh, or you know maybe up to 50% of baseball players. They were never suspended. They were never like caught by an official 
drug tests because Major League Baseball wasn't really doing anything to drug test these guys at the time. And so I think the the real, at the core of a lot of the Hall of Fame debate now, um, and it's starting to change a little bit, but um, there is on the ballot uh, an integrity clause. And it says, like, uh, you know, part of what you're voting for is a guy's integrity. Um, and so a lot of people, and I guess understandably, will cite that and say, well, that means Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens don't belong in there because they don't, I know that they don't have integrity because I believe they cheated the game. Now, my take, and well, I don't want to tell you my take. I want to know, if, so what do you think about that? Do you, do you think that those guys, and this is, uh, the Hall of Fame is all sort of meaningless, but uh, do you think that those guys who did PEDs probably at a time when the league wasn't really policing them should be punished retroactively by being kept out of the Hall of Fame? So I think I actually, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, the stuff that you've written, I actually think that that isn't fair. Well, like, you don't have to go based on what things I've said. No, no, no. I know, but I'm I'm actually thinking about it, and I and I think I actually agree with you. Like I like I think that you know it is this, the whole the whole process of kind of moralizing people's behavior is what is really frustrating, right? Because if that were the case, I would much rather have a strong moral uh, obligation against people who have committed domestic abuse, right? Those people shouldn't be allowed in the league at all. And I don't they're care. all over the Hall of Fame. And exactly, and they're all over the And they're the still putting fame. new ones in every year. Yeah. It's like, like two years ago, they put in three managers who all had like DWI or domestic abuse cases on their, yeah. on, on their ledger, yeah. To, to, to take these like arbitrary moral stands against like, hey, I actually just heard myself to enhance my physical performance uh, as a way of like cheating the game is is just like it's patently ridiculous and and to the point where it's absurd when you let in domestic abusers and people who have like you know been substance abusers and things like that where you take these arbitrary lines so it's it's completely ridiculous like as an as someone who is in the world of sports, but somebody who is not as entrenched in the world of baseball as you are, I see this happening across all sports, and it's, I mean, it's just absurd. Well, and I think it's starting to abate a little bit, because now what's happening is that these, there's Bonds and Clemens are like the pillars of the steroid era, you know? Yeah. And then now these people, like there's, you know, it, like Mike Piazza was a case where it's like a lot of people accuse this guy of taking steroids. There's never <laughs> anything tangible to link him to steroids, other than the fact that he he was a late round draft pick who turned into a great player. That was a huge right. part. It was a huge part of his story and like what made him so lovable as a player was like, wow, this guy was taken in the 63rd round as a favor to Tommy Lasorda and he developed into this Hall of Fame catcher. And yeah. that was something people touted about Mike Piazza until then, you know, all of this sort of anti-steroids backlash came out after the fact and it was like, well, wait a minute. How did this guy turn into that good of a hitter? People develop I mean baseball players also Baseball players come out of nowhere all the time. Mm -hmm. It happens, right? Um, and that's not to say whether he did or didn't do it. Um, he maintains that he didn't, right? And so eventually, I think people said, you know what? It's really silly to keep this obvious Hall of Famer out of the Hall of Fame based on random suspicions that we have no actual evidence of, right? Yeah. And so Mike Piazza got into the Hall of Fame. But now Mike Piazza's in the Hall of Fame. You're like, well, wait. So, like, Mike Piazza's in the Hall of Fame. Jeff Bagwell's going to make the Hall of Fame this year. Another guy that people have sort of targeted as uh, as a suspect, again, for, I think, bad reasons. But, you know, for whatever reason, 
people are, guys are going to get him. We don't know who took steroids and didn't, right? So at, at the very basis level, you can't say like, well, these guys we know, we got to keep them out. These guys we don't know, we can let them in. Um, if you're, and, and I think it's ridiculous to punish players the whole era uh, for that. And I think basically at, at, the, at the bottom line is that like, Choosing, picking, and choosing when we get to moralize as yeah. baseball writers, and I forget who said it, but like, you, if you had to ch choose a group of people qualified to make moral judgments, and I say this as a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America, it is absolutely not the Baseball Writers Association of America. <laughs> it is not my job. I write about baseball. Yep. I can tell you that Barry Bonds is the best baseball player I've ever seen. I cannot tell you confidently that he is a good or a bad person or a man of integrity or not, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know Barry Bonds. I just know that I loved watching the guy hit home runs and that to me, he's the because he's the best player I've ever seen because he contributed more to his teams than any other player uh, in my lifetime, then there should not be a Hall of Fame if not if that guy's not supposed to be in it. So that's my take. And I would say, like, yeah, there's plenty of other guys I think that should be in the Hall of Fame this year, but, like, to me, I'm, I think that if I had a vote this year, I would almost be tempted to just vote for Barry Bonds. And just, like, that would be my statement, like, here. Like, until Barry Bonds gets in, I don't even care. I don't even care because that, to me, uh, any sort of pantheon of baseball greatness needs to include mm -hmm. these guys who were doing something that many other people were doing that didn't make everybody else the best player in baseball and that no one was doing anything to police, including Bud Selig, the commissioner, who just got put into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, be, be, because people like watching them hit home runs. It was like, dope. It was so it fun. It was dope. It was amazing. Yeah. It, I, I, I generally, I think that anytime we come down to try to police people's morals, it becomes questionable. Um, and and how do you even, like, if you really think yeah. about that, right, and maybe it's different for Barnes and Clemens, and maybe it's different for the guy at the fringe of the roster, how can you tell me it's wrong that I'm going to, yes, I'm going to risk my long-term health to yep. play baseball, which is the thing I've done my whole life, and which is my best route to making a, cutting out a comfortable life for my family, right? And you can say, like, who do I care about more? The integrity of baseball and this, like, nonsensical, like, nostalgic, fake thing that people are holding up as, like, baseball has always been a clean sport, the, the love of the game, or my family members who I can make rich for the rest of their lives and give yep. comfortable existences to by, you know, hopefully improving myself with this drug. And, like, I just will not ever say that I wouldn't have taken steroids if I were a baseball player in 1999. I feel pretty confident I probably would have done it. It is about prioritizing an institution over someone's actual life. That is, that is crazy and absurd. It makes no sense to me. Right, right. Okay, yeah. So we're on, anyway. the, we're on the same page. Yeah, um, it, it would have been nice to argue about it, but no, we're on the same page yeah, about this one. I'm glad, because <laughs> um, you're, you're a reasonable person. And I, I think, think, and you know what's, and Bonds and Clements are going to get in probably next year. Uh, it's, it's clearly moving in their favor. I think mm -hmm. more and more people in, of my generation are getting votes, and, and people of my generation, you love baseball because you watch Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs one year. It's the coolest thing that ever happened. Um, I could talk about it forever. I don't want to. Um... <laughs> I All right. You want to take one last question? Uh, sure. 
Um, well, I'll do one, one quickly. Uh, this is because this one I don't think you have. You're not in New York. You don't know a lot about Walt Clyde Frazier, who's the Knicks broadcaster, okay. former Knicks player, uh, the best dresser in the world. He uh, actually sometimes brings in rugs to his suit maker and has the suit maker turn the rugs into suits. Um, he has this incredible cow ensemble that you have to see to believe. Uh, he's like one of my favorite sports personalities. This guy, Rob M., asks, do you think the average 20-something could currently beat uh, Walt Clyde Frazier in a one-on-one. If not, how old would Clyde have to be? I'm going to say no. Uh, he is six foot four. He seems like he's in great shape, even at 71. And he was a former NBA player, right? He's just going to drain shots on your average 20-year-old. Like I, I'm saying, like even if you're faster than him and and at this point can jump higher than him because he's 71, I think that if you are the average height, five foot nine, five foot ten, you're not going to really do much to interfere with a six foot four guy's shot. And he is going to just rain down baskets on you from all over the court. And I would love to watch that. So if anyone's, if Walt Clyde Frazier is listening and wants to start challenging random 25-year-olds to basketball games, I would happily watch it. I would put it on Facebook Live. We can bet it on USA Today Sports. Um, please do that. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Can I make that a Facebook Live? Yeah, no, no, no. We would absolutely do that. And I think that he has, I would say, uh, and like, uh, you know, hopefully he has more than nine, ten more years of doing that. But I would say like, at 80, it's kind of hard to expect you to beat a 25-year-old in a game of one-on-one. Um, I, I very much hope that he uh, honestly lives forever and, and keeps calling Nick games and making ridiculous rhymes because it's fun and wearing awesome suits. But, like, I'm going to say it's too much to ask for an 80-year-old to beat, like, a, a good 25-year-old at basketball. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if an 80-year-old is still just alive and kicking, like, he's done more than enough. Um... Do you want to take... Okay, oh, I got a hockey question. Um, okay. And this one I think you have a... Maybe you have a take on? Uh, and it's a tough one. I, I haven't really thought about it a lot. But mm -hmm. uh, someone whose handle I won't mention, uh, or whose Twitter name I won't mention, uh, asks, favorite hockey movie other than Slapshot? And so that... I, I'm a big Slapshot guy. So... Everyone always expects me, not even expects me, but everyone's always surprised. So I will say my favorite, what, what my favorite hockey movie is not, it is not Mighty Ducks, which is a movie that I, is, is a kid's movie, and I understand that people think it's a hockey movie, but I've actually never really sat all the way through it, and it means nothing to me. Um, I'm not a Mighty Ducks person. My favorite hockey movie, I think, uh, is... Probably Goon. Like, that is, it came out, um... I don't know that movie. Oh, but Nate, oh. we wrote about that movie. Nate wrote about that movie, right? Yeah, it is, it stars, um, I'm gonna have to IMDB this real quick, but it stars, oh yeah, Sean William Scott? Yeah, yes, Stifler. Stifler. Um, and it came out in 2012, and it really is about, like, an enforcer in minor league hockey who, you know, is trying to make the team... It definitely is a unromanticized portion of what hockey probably is really like, which is low pay, a lot of hurt, and a lot of people that just never make it to the NHL. Um, so I really like Goon a lot. That's one of my favorite hockey movies. I like Miracle. 
That's I've always great. Never seen Miracle. Never seen Goon. I but I think I will check out Goon. I'm looking. I just I googled it real quick. It's uh it's got uh, Jay Baruchel, who's the guy like he's from uh, This Is the End. He and that mm -hmm. show a show I love, Man, uh, man Seeking Woman, uh, just because it's so weird. Um, and it's got uh, it's written by Evan Goldberg, who's one of the guys who wrote Superbad, which I think is like one of the funniest movies of like the past twenty years. So, yeah, it, it's a really great movie. It's actually like. May not you know doesn't get a lot of mainstream attention, but it's my favorite hockey movie. Huh? And and I love I love Stifler and stuff. That guy cracks me up. I'll, I'll also, watch that movie. Also, secret hockey fan who I think should be more open about his hockey fandom. Lee Schreiber is in this movie. He's great. I love him. Uh, people tend to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think that I mean if you're not counting Happy Gilmore, which is like a formative movie in my life. Uh, because he wasn't, you know, he was a, a, it's, see, you wouldn't like it now, because now you're, you're, we're too old for it. Like, it, it's like the type of thing that, um, I think it had to appeal to you at like 13 or 14, which is when I, I saw it. And like, once it hooks you, for me, at least once it hooks me at that age, then it's, I'm hooked forever. And I'm never going to say it's a, it's not <laughs> the best movie in the world, but like the early, like Adam Sandler's like first run of movies, like when, when it was, uh, the water boy and, and happy Gilmore and, uh, and Billy Madison, like all of those came out at like the exact right age for me. And so it was just like, this is my guy. These are my movies. And and, like, they have honestly impacted, like, the way I speak to this day. Certain <laughs> things I say that I have long forgotten are just, like, internalized references to those just, movies. Just come from those movies. Yeah. Um, so that would be, I mean, that's my obvious one. But I liked The Mighty Ducks. I, I, again, like, I was 11 when it came out, and that feels <laughs> like exactly the right age for The Mighty <laughs> Ducks. Um I don't know. I didn't, I didn't go nuts over it. Some people did. I thought it was a pretty funny movie. Like, I, 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 uh, I guess I enjoyed it. I guess if you're saying no Slapshot, then it's got to be that one because I haven't seen Goon and I haven't seen Miracle. And I don't think Youngblood, Youngblood with, like, Patrick Swayze and Rob Lowe is also pretty good. It's like, it's like an 80s hockey movie yeah. and it's completely cheesy. Um, but it's definitely fun. I know that a copy of that exists on VHS in my parents' basement to this day, <laughs> but I have never seen it. I mean, I just, I love, I mean, like, 80s Rob Lowe with, like, 80s Patrick Swayze is just too good to pass up. That's, those are some hot dudes. <laughs> yeah, those are some good-looking guys um, with some amazing right. hair. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will not, I will not contend on, on that point. I think that, that, that is, like, sort of peak 80s man meat then. That is just, like, <laughs> those are just some beefcakes of the, I mean, Rob Lowe is, like, a little wispier, and, and Swayze is, like, a little macho, but those are, like, the two hottest dudes of the mid-80s. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the two hottest dudes of the mid-80s, and, and Rob Lowe, you know, still handsome as heck, so. All right. Young is also great. Um, all right, well, I'll, I may check that out. Probably not before Goon. <laughs> we should also wrap up because we have a real-life uh, work meeting coming up soon. We do, we do. Um, so thanks for doing this again. I think we have, again, pushed it up close to an hour, which is never the plan, but always seems to be the way it works out because we both have a lot of things to say about stuff. I know. Maybe we should just talk more often. So 
Uh, I don't know, because I don't want to, I don't really like to interact with people in ways that don't benefit me professionally. True, so, true. this is probably it for us. Alright, thanks, Ted. <laughs> um, you can check out uh, the For the Win podcast. We are on iTunes, we are on SoundCloud, we are on Stitcher. Uh, please subscribe, please rate and review. Uh, you can send us questions via the internet in various ways, and we will answer them on one show like this in the future. Uh, you can check out everything we're writing at ForTheWinFTW.USAToday.com. Thank you for sticking with us for yet another hour on the For the Win podcast. Hemel, again, thank you, and peace out. It's been awesome. Thanks, Ted. <laughs>